0: Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 Podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of evolution 2 8020 sales and marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now.
1: Okay, so welcome everybody and good morning. I think this is a very special occasion. Um, I have the simple job, which is simply to welcome you and introduce um, our main speakers, who will have the much more complicated task of explaining um, why we think this is a special moment. Um, And we do think it's a special moment because there is, at the moment, a fierce debate about, about evolutionary theory. And we think that we are in the middle of a fairly significant and radical change So that the theories that were so brilliantly evoked by uh, Charles Darwin, and then his very successors, loosely termed neo-Darwinians, is now under challenge again. And I hope that our guests this morning will be able to explain a little bit about how this works and how exciting this is for um, our future thinking, about how our bodies work, and maybe how thinking and machines and and future inventions uh, may be constructed. As I say, this is in a sense complicated, but complicated in an interesting way. Um, And we can only marvel at how, as we understand more and more about ourselves, how amazingly they have this power to engineer change in a way that's way beyond our current capacities for understanding And even though people tend to marvel so much about artificial intelligence, um, we're pretty convinced, aren't we, that cells are far and away ahead of the game. And the really exciting thing, and I think this is what we're going to be discussing this morning, is to see how we can further our knowledge of the way the cells can change and the direction it's not a simple linear direction it's much more randomized but nevertheless it's randomized with with a purpose so i do think this is an exciting moment and thank you all for joining us this morning so my job now is to introduce our first speaker uh, professor dennis noble who's a scientist extraordinaire we regard him very much as our dear friendly polymath He's a physiologist, he's a biologist, he's a philosopher, he's a linguist. He's also an activist, and I personally got to know him best when uh, he started a campaign to save uh, investment and research in science, the famous Save British Science campaign in the 1980s. Um, He first came to prominence with his work inventing a model of the human heart, which eventually led to the uh, introduction and development of pacemakers, uh, which we're all familiar with. So he's very much involved in these current debates around the idea of systems biology, and he's expressed his ideas in two wonderful books, very easily readable, very accessible, The Music of Life, and more recently, Dance to the Tune of Life. Dennis, would you like to explain a a little bit more about the current debates and um, what's, what's happening now? the background to this prize which we're going to be announcing shortly. Yes, thank you Paul for that.
2: Um, I'll be fairly brief. Um, It seems to me that, yes, there is a lot of discussion now about the fundamentals of biology. I, I was involved just three years ago in helping to organise one of the rare joint meetings between the Royal Society and the British Academy, which occurred um, three years ago in 2016, has been published in the Royal Society's journal Interface Focus. And the articles in that issue, which are under the heading of New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, Biological, Philosophical and social science perspectives indicate what is going on. It was an absolutely fascinating meeting and incidentally the huge hall here was completely full. In fact there was a huge waiting list for people uh, to come to the meeting. One of the people who was present was was Perry Marshall and I'll, I'll come on to Perry in just a moment and to the prize. Um, the next significant development for me was meeting up with a Um, remarkable bacteriologist at Chicago University, uh, James Shapiro, who wrote this book, Evolution of You from the 21st Century. James Shapiro worked for a period um, in the last century with Barbara McClintock and some of you will know that her major discovery was of what we sometimes call jumping genes. The ability, as she found in chromosomes in corn, for chunks of the genome to move from one part of the um, genome to another. Of course, she wouldn't have called it the genome in those days. It wasn't even known that it was DNA that was the basis of the genetic material. And she received the Nobel Prize for her discovery of Um, what we would now call mobile genetic elements in, I think it was 1983, at the age of about uh, 81. Jim's book explains how that led in turn to him uh, questioning some of the fundamentals of the way in which DNA is interpreted. Uh, Nobody incidentally, and certainly not in this room, is challenging the importance of DNA, the importance of there being a database there that enables Um, cells to pass on from one generation to another uh, the valuable information that is in DNA. I think what is common between certainly some of us is that it's that DNA is more controlled than it is controlling. That's the way I would put it, and that's exactly what Barbara McClintock thought too. In her Nobel Prize lecture, which was published in Science, she said the, the genome is an organ of the cell. Which I think gets the idea of causation uh, the right way round. And that leads me to to Perry. Now Perry, you're you're extraordinary. You are a businessman. You have a reputation for marketing. You have best sellers in books like 80-20 Sales and Marketing, Ultimate Guide to Google AdWords, and Industrial Ethernet. But you end up also publishing a book which has a title not very different from James Shapiro's, Evolution 2.0, whereas he has it as um, a view from the 21st century. I read this book very, very carefully because I found it initially a bit puzzling how somebody like you, with your background, admittedly with technological knowledge starting off as an engineer, right? Um, But still I was uh, intrigued to know, (laughs) to what extent were you getting any of it right? And he does more or less because what he writes is not very different in terms of perspective from what I um, write in my own books. And so when Perry approached me with the news that he had a number of investors willing to put up a major prize, I was intrigued. Now, why should there be one? As I see it, okay, we're adding various processes to the story of evolutionary biology, particularly the control by epigenetic factors and the fact that material can go down via microsomes to the germline and so on. But it leaves two things, it seems to me, then completely unexplained. How did life get going in the first place? And what is the origin of the genetic code? And I would regard those as the two very, very big questions for science today. On how life got going in the first place, there are people trying very hard. Lee Cronin is a good example in Glasgow to start with simple chemistry in a dish to find out how it could be that proteins might have evolved from simple structures to very much more complicated structures. But we're still a long, long way away from understanding how all of that could come together and then eventually develop a store which is DNA. I put it that way because I can't see personally how DNA can have been there at the beginning. After all, it requires the cell to enable it to reproduce, It requires the cell also, incidentally, to correct errors in that reproduction replication process. But that then leads to the other big question then. As DNA evolved, where did the specific code these three nucleotides mean, if that's the right word, this particular amino acid, where did that come from? Because with triplet code, there could be many possible ways in which you could arrange that. So did it happen by the chance chemistry being that it went one way rather than another, in which case there's no explanation at all? Or is there some good chemical reason why that code should be as it is rather than anything else? And that would be important to questions like if we find life on Mars or one of the moons of Jupiter or wherever we might eventually find it in the solar system, will we find the code is the same? Will we find the code at all? Or could it be that you've got organisms that are essentially cells without DNA? Not impossible, incidentally. So I agree with you, Perry, that it's the biggest challenge that at the moment we could say that biology faces. I say the biggest because you might think the origin of life is even bigger, in a sense it is. But I think this just conceivably could yield to the way in which the chemistry process enabled it to happen in the first place. I just somehow think there has to be a reason why it is as it is. So when you asked me whether I'd be on the judging panel for this, I tell you my first reaction was that I don't know enough. Uh, and I think it was probably... That's what you said. That's what I said, exactly. Uh, and I'm not sure whether George Church at Harvard said the same. I hope not. No, he, did, he didn't actually say that. No, good. <laughs> and Michael Ruse is it at is Florida State, mm-hmm. yes, uh, who is a philosopher. And incidentally, just to reassure those who might wonder whether there are any Uh, sort of somewhat metaphysical questions being involved here. He's a card-carrying come agnostic so at least we get that one on the table. (laughs) (laughs) We are a funny old mix. Um, Anyway, I think the best thing now, Perry, is you tell us why you decided to, to launch the prize. Why is it as big as it is? And... What? How did it, how, Where? Where does all the funding come from? Here you are. There are the <laughs> questions. Over to you. Okay. Well, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll get even more difficult questions from around the table.
0: Well, good morning. Thank you. It's an honor to be here at the Royal Society. Well, so we're here raising, doubling the prize amount, and it's the first significant um, activity I've had here in Europe. Um, discussing this and so I'm just gonna tell you probably about the first 10 minutes here I'm just gonna give you the background and then we'll do Q&A um, after that I'll have a, a little word from Kevin Ham here um, so this story starts literally in this little Chinese bus in Western China where I went to visit my brother in 2004 and my brother was an English teacher who was also working part time as a missionary in China. And we had been having these discussions back and forth because he was increasingly doubting the whole religious thing writ large. And so these emails were going back and forth and we were discussing. And when I got there, I realized he's thrown this whole thing out the window. And we're pastor's kids. So this is a. A bit of a shock to my system a little bit of shock to the family dynamic shall we say and so I was feeling a little uncomfortable and we got into this argument and I would say that I retreated to my comfort zone which is engineering because I'm an old, and I, I said Brian look at the hand at the end of your arm I said this is a nice piece of engineering I said you don't think this is a Collection of random accidents, do you? And he goes, hold on! And he just came right back at me with a standard, Perry, all you need is random copying errors of DNA and natural selection in millions of years, and you'll get a hand, and you don't need any engineering. And now, I didn't really have a problem with evolution per se, but I'd never quite heard it phrased that way. I had always looked at my hand and said there's there's something very very intentional going on here and he was challenging that and I just in, in a few seconds inside my own head I thought okay I already know without pushing this argument any further that there's a whole bunch of biologists that would agree with him and not agree with me and I know from what I've done so far in my career and in school, that there's a lot of things in science that are very counterintuitive. And you know what? I don't know. So so like, Perry, why don't you stop arguing with your brother right now? And it wasn't helping anyway, if you know what I mean. You know, we're trying to have this pleasant visit. And I made a decision. When I get home... I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. He had already been dragging me with him against my will anyway, and I already had this whole cloud of religious and philosophical questions, and I said, you know what, I'm an engineer, I know how to read a scientific paper, I'm scientifically literate, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna let science make this decision for me. And you know, my belief system could completely change and that's terrifying, but you know what? Here we go. And I just leaped into the void. And that's how this started. Well, so what's about to follow is a story of transforming what started as a philosophical and religious question and turning it into an engineering question. And then eventually turning it into a prize. Okay? And so I went home and I started obsessively reading and buying books and I'm an entrepreneur and if you know entrepreneurs, they're all obsessive compulsive kind of people and they just, probably scientists are too I imagine. Uh, but I just started buying books and going to websites and, and voraciously digesting things from all parts of the spectrum. Everything I get, get my hands on. So, so here's, what, here's what I discovered. I wrote. Well, for a while, I floundered helplessly. I was, I was just be, uh, inundated with information, and I couldn't make sense of it. And I couldn't figure out like what's the starting point with this, and which facts do you put first, and which facts do you put second. Well, one day, I was trying to understand DNA. Genetic mutations the genetic code, and I suddenly had this flash of recognition And here's what it was I had written this book industrial Ethernet Which uh, for a major? Society of process control engineers, and if any of you have trouble sleeping tonight this may (laughs) help Um, but it actually turned out to be kind of fascinating how all the ones and zeros go on a wire and how ingenious all of it is. And I was studying DNA and mutations and all of that, and I, said, I was like, wait a minute. I've seen all of this before. I know what this is. Now, the diagram on the screen shows the dissection of an Ethernet packet on the top And on the bottom, transcription and translation of DNA. And you can see just graphically how similar they are. Mathematically, they're identical. It's encoding and decoding, it is a communication system. There's an encoder, a message, and a decoder. And all of a sudden, I had all of these familiar things that I could attach all of this to. I'm like, okay, I can start with this. I understand genetics. Genetics is digital communication. I understand digital communication because I wrote an Ethernet book. Suddenly, in a whole bunch of things, like a whole bunch of suspicions, also came along, which. It, took two or three years to later confirm. It all just fell into place. The ABCs of a communication system is that you have an input that goes into an encoder, it gets turned into a message, and then it, it gets decoded. So I send you a text message, it gets encoded on my phone, it gets turned into ones and zeros, and it comes into your phone. Through Wi Fi or what have you, and you read the message. And if what was put in corresponds properly to what came out, then communication has successfully happened. On the left here is part of an ASCII table. 100001 is a capital A, and 1000010 is a capital B. And in DNA, AAA is lysine, and GGG is glycine. And so if you have an encoder message and a decoder and a table, you have a communication system. And that's exactly what you know it's in every biology book known to man. As I started to explore this, I I came to this realization that there's a million codes, 999,999 of them are designed. And then there's one we don't know where it came from, and it's DNA. Now, what I told Dennis when we we talked on the phone after the Royal Society meeting two and a half years ago, I said to Dennis, ten years ago, when I was sort of in the beginning of this, you could have pegged me as a card-carrying, intelligent design guy based on exactly what I just told you like well to an engineer this looks totally designed but there were a couple of things that caused me to to shift my position to be very much in concert with Dennis and people like uh, James Shapiro and others a spouse was maybe we'll get into this later it's kind of up I got very fascinated with evolution itself and when, when I discovered Barbara McClintock my inner geek just went crazy. Because she discovered that corn plants cut, splice, edit, and re-engineer their own DNA in real time. And to an engineer who was tempted to be a creationist, I suddenly saw, it was like a whole universe opened up. I'm like, oh, this is way, way more interesting than anything I've been told so far. Now this was in probably 2006 that I discovered Barbara McClintock, but it took me two years of reading and researching before I actually found this. I'm like, why isn't this front page news? And so I became immensely fascinated with evolution itself. This is the greatest engineering problem ever. And neither of the camps so to speak, are doing it justice. Well, and then you get to the origin of life and the origin of code, and it would be easy to just abdicate to a divine explanation, but I suspect that there are some principles here that science has not figured out. I still believe in God, but I don't like God of the gaps arguments. I think they routinely fail. And and we're trying to get past this. And so here's how the prize works: if you can produce a self-organizing digital communication system, we'll write you a check for $100,000, and there are no other strings attached. The first person that shows up who's done this, they get a check. But if your process is patentable, the Natural Code LLC will fund the patent. And Pay you ten million dollars for the rights for it and partner you into the company so that you participate in the profits as it grows Because I think this would be extremely Valuable intellectual property. I actually think I think that origin of life evolution itself AI and maybe consciousness are really the same single problem not four problems And I think an answer to this question of how do you get from chemicals to code would unlock the door to all of those problems. That's what I suspect. I don't know that that's true, but that's what I suspect. Okay, why a prize? One, information is the central question in biology. Where does the information come from? How is the information processed? How is information from you know one species to the next in an evolutionary process how is that information actually generated number two computer programs don't write themselves but cells do DOS did not evolve into Windows by itself but bugs evolve into superbugs in 30 minutes so there's something that people in the software world don't understand at all number three Alexa and Siri Understand every word you say, and they have no idea what you mean. Your dog doesn't understand a single word you say, but your dog knows what you mean. There is a fundamental difference between biology and human technology, and I think this would bridge that gap. Number four, a solution to this will revolutionize technology and medicine uh, for reasons that should be obvious, but I think we can talk about in the Q and A. And fifth and this is one of the reasons I wanted to have this meeting last summer I had a long conversation with George Church he's godfather of modern genetics you could say and we talked about the risks and the dangers of gene editing and CRISPR we can edit DNA as easily as inserting a picture into a blog post and you can buy a gene editing kit on Amazon for 169 US dollars with free shipping okay and I think that this information question has not been treated seriously enough. There's not enough journals about it. There's not enough books about it. Most people are dealing with this as a chemistry problem. I think it's an information problem. And if we don't take this information problem seriously enough, I think we're going to make some very big mistakes and we won't be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And I hope that we can talk about that today. So judges, George Church from Harvard and MIT. Everybody in genetics knows who he is. Incredibly prolific, 130, 43 patent apps. Fascinating guy. Next judge, Dennis Noble from Oxford, first to come on board. Needs no introduction here. Uh, Michael Ruse from Florida State University. The president of HeroX who hosts our prize said Perry you're a Christian and people are automatically gonna think this is like some kind of I don't know intelligent design publicity stunt can you get like get an atheist on your panel Um, let me see what I can do yeah so we got Michael Ruse I love Michael he's a hilarious guy he's also very friendly he's not combative He's been involved in many debates and discussions about science and religion. He's been in some of the creation trials as an expert witness in the United States. You all know how different the United States landscape is with this question than, than Europe. So he came on board. So I have these judges. And at naturalcode.org, we have the whole prize description. It, it redirects to the Hero X website. We have a $10 million prize, and I think we need a substantial sum of money to pinpoint the importance of this question. So,
1: Okay. Um, thank you very much, Perry. So just to reiterate, what we're announcing today is that the prize is now um, $10 million, and that's, that's completely new um, and, and, and a huge increase uh, from previous uh, thinking about it. It's the first time, Perry, that you've talked about this prize beyond uh, America so this is in a sense trying to turn the prize into a global prize Mm -hmm. and the third uh, key element uh, is that you've realized that this prize is is beyond um, uh, chemistry and biology and engineering it's really about information which is central to the way that we we operate in society and in terms of our body so these are the, the the major um, announcements this morning in in the Royal Society in this very special conference room. I think this is the
0: most fundamental in si- question in science that can be precisely defined.
1: Well, thank you very much. Now we're going to open it up to questions, but before I do, we're going to bring in a close colleague of yours, Kevin Hamm, who's kindly joined us, flown in this morning, who wants to add his perspective on this. My
3: name is Kevin Hamm. I'm from Vancouver, Canada. <laughs> And I flew in for this occasion uh, and the announcement of the 10 million X Prize. Uh, I'm one of the investors, and I just wanted to give you uh, a background story of how I came into it, uh, which leads me to my childhood. Uh, when I was 14, I was uh, skating around on an ice rink. Uh, by supper time, I could barely bring my spoon to my mouth, by dinner time, I could barely walk. I ended up in a children's hospital admitted for uh, autoimmune disease. Uh, While I lay in bed for the next few weeks I wondered um, if I was going to live and if I did I decided I was going to be a doctor. So that was kind of like my mission in life. Uh, At 16 I started studying reading the Bible. I came to believe there was a God Um, I did a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, and then I got into med school, finished med school, uh, became a family doctor at age 30. While I was in my medical residency, I saw 40 patients a day, 10 minutes per patient, and I just thought it was like a factory. And so I thought, you know what, I don't want to do this like a business, so I, I, I knew that the internet was gonna be a revolutionary uh, medium, uh, greater than any media revolution that we've experienced in history, so I decided to create an internet business. Um, so I did that, it started making more money in one month than I did the whole year in residency, so I thought I'd do that for about six more months and then go back to medicine, uh, but I haven't gone back to medicine, <laughs> I'm still doing business. Uh, I met Perry uh, in 2016, about three years ago. And we were having dinner, and I went to meet him because of his 80-20 book. And his book talked about 80-20 being fractal. Uh, And so there's an 80-20 inside of 80-20, and that fascinated me. And it totally changed the way I thought about business, about life, about everything, actually. So we were having dinner, and then he started telling me about this book that he wrote had written Evolution 2.0, um, and that fascinated me. Um, after our five-hour dinner, I put my hand out and I said, "I'm in. Uh, I want to be involved in this prize." Uh, and he told me he, had, he was trying to get investors at a million dollars in. Uh, so I said, "I'm in." I was number. I was the fifth investor, uh, and then we started having these annual meetings. Um, we had our first one in Hawaii, our second one in Napa Valley, and our third one's gonna be in Iceland uh, this summer. And so now the number of investors are double at 10. And so it creates this very eclectic, unique group of people from all walks of life. Uh, and so that, that's, that's pretty exciting. Part of the thing that I got from this was, that makes a lot of sense, what Perry just described. That yeah, this this genetic code, you know, all of us with twenty-three pairs of chromosomes multiplies and then it differentiates into all these diversified cells that become tissues and organs and you know billions of unique uh, beings and species and all. All even with the same code, you get different expressions of beings. Even with twins and triplets and so forth, based on the external factors, internal factors, and that's that's just so amazing. Uh, and then I thought, why isn't this being taught in school? Like I never heard of anything like this before. <laughs> so, and. I was like, Perry, this, this needs to be in the schools. Like, it, it needs to be introduced. And just this, how and I was thinking, how is Perry, who is an electrical engineer, able to understand and explain DNA and genetics better than I can understand it? And I, I loved the stuff. I studied it. I wanted to support this to get the information out into a broader arena. Uh, and obviously the10 million dollar prize might be an incentive for people, a little bit more incentive than just like um, I don't know like I don't know how much you win in a Nobel Prize, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's less, than that. <laughs> less than that So
1: this is a wonderful challenge prize. Thank you Kevin. thank you so
4: please.
1: Um, uh, open to anybody to to ask
4: so I didn't quite catch the term I was noting them down Harry tell me again the terms of winning the prize and the IP and all that and how you will the judges will decide whether someone has done what's needed
0: so this slide right here really summarizes it if you can take some chemical process, and without cheating, mm. get encoding, message, and decoding through some emergent property or what have you, then you solve solved the prize. And it doesn't have to be the genetic code. It can be any kind of code. It, it has it needs to have a, a certain number of symbols in it, and the specification goes into all that. But basically, we're just looking for exactly what you see on the screen where you can draw an encoding table and a decoding table and see that it's working correctly and you've won the challenge. At that point, you get $100,000. And then the next question is, is this defensively patentable? And if it is, the investors are agreeing to pay for all the research costs and the patent costs. And when the patent is granted, then the discoverer gets another $9.9 million, making the total 10, and they also get a stake in the company, Natural Code LLC, and the whatever intellectual property that we can
4: commercialize or sell. But why shouldn't the discoverer just do it himself and just keep all the IP and bring in a lot of other investors. Why should he go um, to you? Okay, so should... here,
0: they, they can do that.
4: Yeah. Um,
0: the reason why they might not want to do that is, so the investor, the, the discoverer could say, I'm just going to go sell this to Microsoft. Yes. Okay, you as a discoverer are going to have to go do battle with Microsoft and their attorneys and you're going to have to get money out of this thing and it's going to cost you a lot of money to hire your attorneys to do all of this. And I think if, if, you, if you look at the, like we, I've got a sheet with some of the investors. I've, I've got a guy who used to manage $60 billion for Mesero yes. Financial and was yes. president of the world's oldest bank in the United States. Um, I've got very savvy serial entrepreneurs, marketers, investors, people, some of the smartest business people I've ever met, and I'm in the business consulting profession. I I think a person has a much better chance of going into that gladiator fight and coming out alive with... A bunch of guys who have a bunch of money at stake. <laughs> so yeah, but you know, if somebody discovers this, they're gonna have to decide I would rather collect my $10 million and, and work with these people.
4: Yeah. yeah. Just one follow up for I So what would you see as the money making applications of this system? So I that think would make it so valuable.
0: Okay, so I think if if you could pour chemicals in your bathtub and get digital communication to occur, yes. you've created some kind of AI. Yeah. And you've done something that nobody in Silicon Valley's ever done. Mm. Because all of the AI in Silicon Valley is from guys typing in keyboards. This would be some kind of a naturally occurring digital communication. So I think this correlates to origin of life. It, you know, if if there is a naturalistic explanation for origin of life, if origin of life is a proper scientific question and not just an internal mystery or not just a religious or spiritual thing with no physical answer, then there must be a process and we don't know it is. So what if so every time you discover a major new principle in science Technological applications multiply. Right? So Einstein discovers E equals M C squared, 20 years later we've got nuclear fission and, and stuff like that. So the the implications of theory relativity or or any of these things are just I think it would be like inventing the transistor.
4: Yeah. Except
0: a new kind of transistor that nobody's ever <laughs> imagined. Yeah. Dumb.
4: How complex does the message have to be?
0: It's in the specification. I believe it has to be equivalent to, well, I should... Um, okay. But yeah, it's like 32 states or something like that. Um, you know, the, ge- the genetic coding table is 64 we sort of arbitrarily decided that if it could represent 32 different states, mm. that would be more than enough. And, uh, and if, if you go to naturalcode.org and you go click on the prize requirements, there is a document there that explains it all in exact detail. In fact, I, I got the specification just about stole it out of an engineering textbook by Bernard Sklar.
2: What would interest me about, you know, the question is, would there also be the natural discovery of the redundancy? Well, I don't know,
0: but when I had that epiphany of, wait a minute, DNA and Ethernet are the same, that means there has to be error correction, that means there's noise, that means that means there's a noise there's a signal in a noisy channel that needs to have enough redundancy to make it intact it means that if the first bacteria was 3 billion years ago then that noise channel has had to be robust enough it means that there has to be error correction and like all of that occurred to me in about a minute and then it took me two or three years to find out, yes, all of that is true. When I discovered Shapiro's work and finding out there's three levels of error correction. In, and and so I have become obsessed and fascinated with this question. And I just don't think enough people are interested enough in it. Like this is like this is where the action is. And we live in the information age, and nobody knows where ones and zeros come from. So
2: so now what? Well, other point, I want to make sure I'm not stopping somebody else coming in. Um, I I very seriously doubt whether silicon can do it. You see, there's a huge difference between water and silicon. Mm. Um, And I'm not just referring to the, the fact that they're different chemically. In, in a silicon chip, uh, your, your, your points in the network are fixed. In water, the very points that form the network are wandering around stochastically. I think that's an enormous difference.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, what's the indication of that? If it can only be done in water, you're gonna to have to pre- recreate you and me. <laughs> hmm.
0: Well, I, I think that well, I've had a lot of time to think about this. And I deal with AI every day because I'm in the online advertising business. And Google and Facebook are spending billions of dollars on AI for that purpose. Okay, And whenever a big company like this tells you about their smart technology, you just need to insert a not so. You know, not so smart AI. Not so smart Siri, right? Like, like, your kids or grandkids ever play with Alexa and they like, you know, trip. Like, they ask it questions and they're doing a Turing test. Well, all computer codes and computers are deterministic. And I do not believe that biological organisms are deterministic. I think Barbara McClintock demonstrated that in her Nobel Prize paper. She talked about plant galls. You know, in a an insect burrows into a plant and the and the plant will develop a genetic rearrangement in response to that insect and it's unique to any particular insect that might be there. Which of course is completely unpredictable. Right? I don't think biology is deterministic. And so And I don't think we'll ever achieve real AI until AI is no longer deterministic.
2: But then it would have to become artificial agency, not artificial intelligence. Yes. So the big difference is between AI and AA. Yes. And I think that AA probably can't be done with silicon. That's the way I would put it.
0: And, And furthermore, see, I think agency is the real question here. Organisms have agency, and we don't know where it comes from or how it works. But it's clearly there.
1: Um, Can I ask a naive question then? Does is that does that not raise a whole lot of subsidiary um, questions about how you manage agency? Yes. And whether you, you might be losing control yes. of a whole new raft of, of Yeah, so... Evolutionary developments.
0: So, you know, all all the sci-fi movies and HAL 9000... I wasn't going to go there, but but in a way... Let's get it on the table. So, first of all, none of that's going to happen while silicon is deterministic. Okay? And all, all those scenarios are distractions from the fact that somebody always owns those technologies and is always pushing the buttons. Okay? Now... This prize is actually a little scary, because if somebody figures this out, we might actually have the first artificial agency. And people can shrink back from that. I think that's, I've thought about this very hard. Well, to just put it bluntly, I think it's better if we own this than if Monsanto gets it. I mean, just to be blunt. um, I think this could come with a ton of questions and responsibilities. But we need to talk about all of those things before we have it, not after. I'm open to all those conversations. I'm not afraid of those conversations. We need to think about these things.
1: Can I ask a a, a more practical and possibly naive question? That is, I I can see the... Dennis and your two fellow judges, you've had an application. Um, Now, in in one sense, the judgment that this is a successful bid is theological in the sense that, you know, can it be patented, can it be applied? But how will you, Dennis, how will you be able to, how will you actually make a judgment about a successful um, bid? I mean, is it possible? Because I think we know that, in, in, in some ways, science is continuous, isn't it? And there ain't, there ain't going to be the final answer.
2: Well, it's obviously possible to judge whether somebody has built a self-creating code transmission system, because it'll be there. It'll okay. be physical. Yep. So there is no difficulty with the judgment the problem as I see it, the reason why I say that I'm a sceptic mm. on his judging panel is that I, I even wonder whether it can be done. Now that's fine, prizes can be very difficult. I mean, the very interesting thing that Martin Rees said to us was uh, former president of the Royal Society and author of Just Six Numbers. He said, you yeah, this is a bit like the longitude prize. Mm-hmm. Know, everybody knows what the longitude yes. prize is. Why don't you explain what It, it was, is. of course, the fact that ships at sea would not be able, they could work out a lot in terms of how time had progressed from, from observing the sky, but the big difficulty came from knowing where around the world, the longitude direction, you were, because the sky will change as a consequence of that in terms of uh, time and so on. So that was, it seems to me, and I think Martin Rees got it absolutely right, that was very much like, was it the 19th century that that price was announced, I can't remember now, but it's very much like, it's it's, it's even earlier isn't it, it's it's a one-off. Yes, clocks were. Yes, yeah, yeah, a big
1: thing that, that the, yeah. some Royal Navy
4: ships went down because they didn't know where they were and they that's right. went into exactly so. rocks.
2: Exactly so, and that was what 17th century. I think so. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mean? Mean so yeah, one might be
4: 17 something. Yeah, I think that's right. So it's 18th
2: century, yeah. isn't it? Yes, I think Martin's got it right though. This is a one-off. There isn't a difficulty about knowing whether it has been one the difficulty is can it be one right. that's the way I see it okay. that's, yeah, that's
4: what, very... what makes you think it can be one that will, it will be possible to create such a system, well, discover it even
1: I suppose if you pose the question that,
4: that's if, and maybe that, there's nothing like the answer because, Well that, so,
0: so, so here's an interesting thing about it uh, yesterday at the uh, philosophy meeting one of the ladies said to me oh, then I imagine that your money is probably pretty safe. <laughs>
4: yes. Because she's
0: a biologist, and she knows this is a very hard question. And, and I said, well, I said, here's what's interesting. Every time I sat down with an investor, and I pitched them on this, and I said, I'm asking you to sign a piece of paper that says, if they solve this thing, you're writing a million-dollar mm. check. None of them were cavalier about it. Yes. Um, None of them were just oh well nobody's gonna win it anyway sure what the heck no they read the private placement memorandum and they went through the thing and they showed it to their lawyer and they looked you know looked at their books and, and everything when you frame it like you know that well they how how would you know that you couldn't win this right so I I, I decided. The last thing I want to do is be in the business of predicting what science won't discover next. Yes. Now furthermore, I think this is such an important question that even if this isn't solved, this will, if people are trying to solve it, it will produce derivative insights and the investor group is interested in those too. This is Shark Tank for biological ideas. This is not just a one-trick pony. We are interested in other things that people might bring to us. We have had people bring interesting things to us uh, in the past. Um, We've had some interesting submissions. We have five submissions on the website that you can go look at. And none of them passed, but you can read the descriptions and the explanations of what they submitted and why we didn't approve them. I think they're very instructive. and I think it's a worthwhile question. You know, one of the things I learned from my parents was, you you head straight into the wind, mm. and you tackle the hardest problem that you can tackle. I don't know how to solve this. I have a few ideas of where the solutions might lie. I don't know how to solve. Look, okay. I had a. Okay, I got to tell you a funny story. I was in Dubai a few years ago trying to raise money for this prize. And I found myself in the offices of EMAR Corporation, which is the company that built the Burj Khalifa. Hmm. It's like the biggest real estate company in Dubai. They're worth billions. And I'm talking to the director of investments at EMAR. And I showed him this. He, He totally got it. He didn't miss a beat. He was a very sharp guy. His name was Nasir Batha, I believe. And he goes, Perry, I can't fund this. This is not real estate. And it's just outside of my charter. So I I can't do this. But I know who's going to win this. And I go, you do? He goes, yeah. He goes, it's not going to be a scientist in a white lab coat at an American university. It's probably going to be a 14-year-old kid in Montessori school in some artistic country like Sweden or Italy. And when he figures it out, everybody will go, dang, why didn't I think of that? Maybe that's why I'm not willing to say that, you know, this can't be one.
4: But has has this system got to be radically different from the DNA system? It could be. But it couldn't, because... A small yeah, variant report, on report. the existing system presumably wouldn't qualify.
0: Well, as long as nobody cheats. I mean, if somebody if somebody does an RNA world experiment, yes, and if the that, thing self replicates and goes and it goes, or if somebody does a Miller-Urey experiment that actually gets you encoding message and decoding, you win. You do it in silicon. You can do it in salt crystals. You can do it in... Anything. Yeah. So you talked about that being a global prize, right, as opposed to maximize chance of someone discovering it. That's what you should be doing. Do you, and you said this is the first time you spoke about it outside the States. Well, do you in any, any significant there? venue. I mean, um, I mean I, I've, I've certainly been on some podcasts and stuff, but nothing like this. Um, and I, I don't really... This hasn't gotten the exposure that... That it deserves. Um, do you have any plans to take it to Asia, and, and, and where would you go? Oh, I'd love to do that. In fact, if any of you have, um, you know, some contacts in Asia, I, you know, if there's a scientific society there that would like to hear about it, I, I'd love to get on a plane and, and go do that. I, I love being here today. I'm, i I'm, I'm an honor. I'm honored to be invited. It's what a great opportunity.
1: Good. Um, any more final thoughts or, or questions? Like, one other that yes.
2: I'd like to throw into the pot um, before we have lunch. Lunch and Sandy will be a buffet and we can then just bring it back to the yeah. table and we can rearrange ourselves on the table as we wish, of course. But um, I, I'm coming back again to the water-silicon issue and why water is such a good medium for life developing. There are many reasons, actually. Water is a very strange substance, but but the most important one here is the stochasticity. Mm -hmm. I seriously think that the process that would lead to that being done is going to have to mimic the way in which, for example, our immune system works. Mm. The the reason I say that is that how how does it work? Just to go through that very quickly. Um, There's a challenge, which is that an invader, a new virus or bacterium, arrives for which the organism does not have the correct DNA to make the right immunoglobulin that would latch on to that invader. It's a lock and key problem, of course. So what does it do? It it stops the error correction, and it allows trillions of new bits of DNA code to emerge, but just in the region of the variable part of the immune goblin. Not everywhere in the genome, otherwise you destroy the information. And that is harnessing stochasticity. And I have a strong suspicion that since there are millions of possibilities of interactions between chemicals, it's almost certainly going to be the case that what does that searches through. Now, that's fine if somebody comes up with a mechanism that will enable you to harness stochasticity to do that. That's even better. Uh, Moreover, it's the reason why I suspect it can't be done in silicon.
4: Mm.
2: For precisely the reason you've got the automatic stochasticity of chemicals in solution, you don't have it in a Mm. silicon Mm shell. There's a clue for somebody out there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Prize, <laughs> would you agree? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Um, we're delighted that we could have this meeting. I mean, it's uh, you all come at relatively short notice because this meeting was added on to a very nice uh, philosophical discussion meeting we had, thanks to the Forum for Philosophy. Um, which Dennis uh, Noble spoke at, and, and Perry was um, our very special guest. But it's given us a wonderful chance to focus on this very exciting prize, and, and to announce it. I mean, we've never you've never announced 10 million before. No, it's, it's uh, I think a significant sum. We added a digit. <laughs> I'm, I'm very we happy. Added about a that. digit. And thank you, Kevin, for thank you proving you're one of our uh, um, supporters of the prize. So we know that you're not here. Um, forced to be here or you explain explained how uh, you've given your support. So thank you all very
0: much. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at cosmicfingerprints.com.